Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your, co- your hosts are Steve Becker and Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at horrormakesushappy.com. Today's guest is Zuberan, or Zuber, or Zubs, or any of the above. Oh, those work. I'm sure there are others, yeah. Dubs up. Um, he is an author that I found through Reddit, um, but he is either in the act of publishing a couple novel novels traditionally, or uh, have you actually got any that are, are fully published or you just, oh, I wish it's, it's a real pain, especially with grad school, mm-hmm. lots of time management. Okay. Um, well, the ones that I know about that we talked about are court for crows, the, and then the sequel to that throne for crows uh, and working on the third one, which is what a grave for crows An end for crows. Oh, an end for crows. Um, and then Song of the Venturing Owl and Gale Rising, and then some other stuff that we can't talk about yet. Um, no spoilers. No. <laughs> uh, so first of all, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, do you have anything in particular that you would like to plug at this time? Uh, let's see here. Well, um... I finally finished first round of edits on A Court for Crows, so that'll be coming out soon. So uh, watch out for that. Uh, as like uh, ebook or ebook or? and available on demand for uh, paperback, probably. Nice. Okay. Going through Lulu. Uh, through Amazon. Yeah. Okay. It is a popular medium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we get started for the listeners, uh, some trigger warnings. We're going to be talking about horror movies, which could involve, well, horror in general, which could involve anything, uh, murder, rape, suicide, child abuse. Chris and I do not self-censor. You will be hearing F-bombs probably throughout the call. Um, so if you're not prepared for that, please take care of yourself and then come back when you're ready. Oh no, my poor ears. And if not, feck off, cup. (laughs) Uh, In this interview, we'll be asking three sets of questions uh, covering your childhood, teenage years, and adulthood to find out uh, what it is about horror that you like. The idea is that if we interview enough people, we might find some interesting common themes, but also might find out some unexpected ones, which would be cool too. Um, We'll be coming at the same questions from multiple angles because sometimes that triggers multiple uh, different memories that we'd forgotten about. Mm -hmm. Um, But that said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there are any questions you don't want to answer, just say I'll pass on that one and we'll move on. So let's start with childhood. What are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Well, this is going to be a bit weird, but I don't remember (laughs) the name of the movie. But when I was very young, I remember watching a movie about a kid who's ripped from his family, turned into a cat and tormented by an evil owl. And for the life of me, I've been unable to find this movie despite looking for it for years. Chris? Was it animated? Animated, yeah. Yeah. Uh, were there witches involved? No, no, that was where they, they turned him into a mouse. Hmm. I'm drawing a blank on that one. It probably wasn't meant to be terrifying, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's one of those things where, yeah, it's, it's meant to be whimsical and, and fun and possibly a family movie. But generally, when children are ripped away from their families and their tears, if you're at a certain young age, it's kind of scary. And traumatizing a little bit. Oh, yeah. Anything else? Um, other movies that I used to watch, uh, The Great Mouse Detective. I, I'm thinking that would not also be not typically considered horror, no? No, it wouldn't be. And uh, American Tale. Okay. These are the things that, you, that used to scare me. Huh. What about these things scared you? Oh, um, there's this scene in American Tale 
where Fievel, who's been separated from his family for most of the movie at this point, is in the same mists as his family, and they completely miss finding each other. And it used to scare the crap out of me, because I used to dream about being lost and just missing the people who were trying to find me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the mouse detective one? Oh, it's, there's a giant uh, cat robot at the end with, like, drooling teeth that breathes fire. Okay. That's, well, yeah, that, <laughs> okay. that sounds very scary. Well, that might have also been an American tale. Whatever. Eh? Uh, okay. Um, and so you were scared of them at the time. Um, did you know that it was meant to be entertainment or did you think like this is okay? Hmm. Um, was there anybody with you at the time when you were watching these, like, uh, friends or other family members? I'm pretty sure I cut all these on TV, so probably not. Okay. Hmm. Um, I mean, you didn't have someone there to sympathize with you, but at least you didn't have somebody teasing you. Yeah. Uh, did you dress up for Halloween? Uh, a few times. Did you have any favorite costumes? Any least favorite costumes? Uh, let's see here. I stopped trick-or-treating around 12, so it's hard to remember everything I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure I went as Mario at some point. That was a weird hmm. costume. Oh, weird. Walking <laughs> around with a rusty pipe wrench. It's a simple one. Yeah, walking around with a rusty pipe wrench and overalls. Um, probably when is Link at some point? I had a really big video game childhood, so. Okay. Okay. Did you ever do Mega Man? Um. Nah. Yeah, that one's complicated with the helmet and and the hand blaster and everything. Mm-hmm. It could be. It could be. Um. So, other than the uh, dressing up part, did you where ha- did you have any good or bad memories related to Hollywood? Uh, Hollywood Halloween as a child. What about the candy? <laughs> oh, I remember getting now and later's and almost and uh, tearing out a tooth on one. Oh God! Ooh, that that can happen. Yeah, yeah, especially with children to teeth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you have any scary dreams when you were a kid that you recall? Oh yeah, uh, I saw an advertisement for uh, one of the Jaws movies and had an incredibly vivid dream about being eaten alive by sharks until only my teeth were left, and then they fell in a cloud of blood slowly to the bottom of the ocean, huh? where they were obscured underneath of the sand. Wow. Wow. It's a couple of things we've discussed on previous podcasts, kind of a mixture of them. You've got the uh, fear of the deep, fear of being eaten, and kind of the fear of uh, being forgotten and disappearing as your teeth just settle into the sand and, and disappear. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That that's a big one. Yeah. There's so there's actually another um, theme in dream interpretation where dreams where you have lost your teeth mm-hmm. are often symbolic of you feeling powerless. Huh. Never heard of that one. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is not you know it, it would make sense for a kid to to potentially dream about that because as a kid you are not all that powerful when you're surrounded by adults who are definitely, you know, much bigger and stronger than you mm-hmm. uh, and, and typically in charge of what you're doing. Um, did you have uh, any situations where you were actually ter- terrified of something as a child? Like in real life? Um, so I almost drowned three times in the same day. Wow. Oof. What? Yeah, yeah. That was left unattended at a water park. Oh my god. And it's a water park, so there are no 
you know, lifeguards on duty? Yeah, yeah, I, I just don't think they realized I was drowning. Well, they are good at their jobs. Oh, yeah. I got yelled at to stop hanging on to the edge. <laughs> you were there. Stop drowning. Stop that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, the alternate thing is, uh, if you weren't saved those three times, then that means you got out three times and went back. <laughs> there is that too. <laughs> I mean, there, there's being a dumb kid. <laughs> I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> uh um, so for you in general, then it doesn't sound like, uh, there was any happiness, uh, and horror related stuff as a child, which so far seems to be normal. Um, of the three people interviewed, uh, only one of them was a weirdo four, four now. Yeah. I was going to say of the four. Now you, you are in good company. Uh, let me think Met three of the four. Let me think. Not particularly. I didn't have a lot of strong exposure to it. I got a quick uh, question before we move on to the, the teenage years, just about the, the animation thing, because it made me think, like, you have all these uh, exposures to, like, like, childhood family animations, which are intended for that purpose, but they always seem to overemphasize the villains and that they can be scary. And it just, it made me wonder, one of the animations I remember as a child was uh, Secret of Nim, and how all the characters in there were very dark and creepy. In fact, Don Bluth, the animator, I think uh, he was working with Disney, and they were like, it's too dark, we can't do this. So he's like, fuck you, I'm going to do it on my own then. I remember that movie as a child, but um, looking back on it now, it's, I don't think it, it was like scary or traumatizing. I just thought all the characters looked cool. So I'm, I'm curious, did you see Secret of Nim as a child? Did you have a similar experience? Like, did the normal movie scare you, but Secret of Nim was like, oh, this is cool. You know, I think of all the Don Bluth films, that was the one I managed to miss. Oh. <laughs> have you seen it since? I have not. Oh, you need to go watch that movie. That you is so go good. Definitely. No spoilers. Yes. My favorite scene, without any spoilers, there's a scene. So uh, there's a, oh, as a matter of fact. There's an owl. Uh, crows. Well, uh, there's an owl, but there's also, would you, you see a crow oh, or a raven? Actually, I just remembered another movie that freaked me out. Hmm? We're Back, A Dinosaur's Tale. Have, have any of you guys ever seen it? I, it sounds really familiar. Uh, one of the, the main villain is this evil circus ringmaster. And at the end of the film, after he's failed, he's devoured bodily by a swarm of crows. Wow. That only leaves behind his fake eye, which was a screw. I do remember this movie now. Yeah, yeah it was really weird. Very weird. Was this one also? Like, I watched it as an adult, and it's still weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what were the uh, some of the scary stories or books or movies during your teenage years that left an impression on you? Oh man, so many, so many. I read a lot of Caroline B. Cooney when I was a teen, who posted a bunch of uh, young adult books, which had a bunch of horror themes. He wrote, uh, sorry, she wrote The Killing of Mr. Kenny, I think. And she wrote a, she actually wrote a book, which is, which is something that we talked about earlier, about a girl who discovers that she has an inborn twin that is trying to take over her body. And that was the first exposure to proper horror that I got, that I read. But I also uh, happened to read the complete uh, version of Flowers for Algernon, which... Ooh, yes. Yes, yes, that might as well be a horror story. Jesus. <laughs> did you have to read that in school, Chris? No, I did not. That, that oh, is man. on the list, though, of like uh, the classics that uh, I really need to get around to reading, like Animal Farm. Yeah, I just, I'm... 
so flowers for Algernon. Um, Zuber, you want to tell him? Oh, yeah. So there's this uh, guy who's a... Uh, simpleton. He, he's a bit of a simpleton um, who's assisting in the lab. And they go to him because he's been having troubles catching up with net classes and the like and say, we have a procedure that can help you. And so they give him this procedure and his IQ doubles, going from like 70 to 140. And as his IQ goes up, he starts making all these relationships and friends and just having like a fantastic life. Mm -hmm. But as it peaks, he starts to get paranoid and angry and lash out at people. Hmm. And then it turns out that the procedure is ultimately temporary. And so as the book peaks, uh, he reads um, Paradise Lost. Wow. And then his IQ starts to drop and he self-destructs, destroys all of his relationships. And the rat that also went through the procedure with him, which was Algernon, ends up dead at the end of the book. And after he's completely destroyed his entire life, uh, he picks up Paradise Lost and says, wow, this looks like a good book. I should read it sometime. Oh, God. That's, and that's dark. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit like Lawnmower Man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are several stories that have taken on that now that I think of it. I haven't read Flowers for Algernon, but I've seen several adaptations of it. Like uh, when Homer got the crayon removed from his brain. I think there was an episode <laughs> of uh, there was an yeah. episode of Always Sunny called Flowers for Charlie, where he mm. was in a, an experiment where they gave him placebo drugs and told him it made him intelligent. But really, it was just all in his head. <laughs> That's, that's pretty good. Um, r- correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but wasn't it also written like as it as if it was his journal? Yes, huh. or diary. Oh, I bet that's interesting. Like as so, he gets there's more a lot of misspellings and... early on, and yeah. the word choice gets more complex as his intelligent peaks, and then he's slowly, as he's losing it, loses words and starts misspelling and making grammar errors again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from that end of it, it like artistically. That part of it was really cool to me as too, as, as well as the actual story. Um, man, that was that was a good, great book, great book to read in high school. Yeah, um, you were gonna say something? No, I was just saying I bet I, I agree. Yeah. So we've got the uh, Carolyn Bakuni books, Flower, Flowers for Algernon. Uh, anything else? Uh, let's see here. So I forgot to mention, but uh, whenever I was younger, I was uh, diagnosed as a genius, which means. The school freaked out and uh, bumped my reading level 10 grades ahead. Ooh, so I was a completely uh, voracious reader all throughout elementary school. So I read a lot of stuff I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I can't name most of them, but I ended up reading most of The Wizard of Earthsea. Hmm. Haven't heard of that one. Um, think, think Harry Potter, but it, from the 70s and 90 times better. Okay. Okay, so I'm guessing that uh, you were, you know, some sort of combination of uh, excited or had some sort of enjoyment of these. There was not just the horror aspect. Um, So what parts of it were you scared by and what parts of it did you think you enjoyed? From the books I described? Yes. Oh, um, well, at around age 15 and 16, 16, I stopped being horrified by anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which the only things that really scare me nowadays are things uh, scared me back then were things from like flowers of Algernon where it's not like some horrible monsters chasing after you. It's 
your own mind is decaying and everything you do makes everything worse and you will forget everything that you have ever accomplished as you burn it down around you. Every nonagenarian's nightmare. Yeah, basically. Um, around that time, I started getting into the discipline that I'm actually in now, which is sociology. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys know anything about sociology, but it's absolutely the most terrifying field of science that you will ever get into. <laughs> how so? You know how in Lovecraft... Uh, there's always this big revelation that drives the main character absolutely insane and he starts stabbing everything in sight because <laughs> he looks yes. up and sees the eye of some giant fish looking down upon him and realizes that he's just merely a speck floating within a sea of stars that I neither think I know cares where you're going with acknowledges. This. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, <laughs> Sociology is like literally just that looking at society and going, wow, so much of what I thought was individually me wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, what I was thinking was the phrase, have you ever heard the phrase, um, if you like the law or sausages, don't look, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't find out how they're made. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So those are the parts that scared you uh, about those things, but what um, do, were there any things that you felt you enjoyed? Oh, yes. So because I read so much whenever I was younger, uh, throughout the whole of my uh, being a teenager, I was constantly consuming stuff. Like, mm -hmm. at a frankly unhealthy rate, I believe at, at points whenever I was a teenager, I was reading upwards of 400,000 words a day. Wow. Mm. Wait, um, 400,000 a day? Yeah, I, I have a really fast reading speed. I can read at 1.3k a minute. That is very fast. You're like a human Johnny Five. Yeah. yeah. No shit. Uh, so w how did this tie into uh, the part that of, of the horror stuff that you enjoyed? Oh, uh, well, so around this time, young adult fiction was getting super popular. And young adult fiction shares something with horror that uh, regular fiction doesn't have. And that's young adult fiction and horror fiction lets you do some absolutely insane shit you can't get anywhere else. Hmm. Like what? Uh, young adult fiction is not afraid to have body counts and to portray the body counts as bloody and brutal as possible to hammer home the idea that these things are bad. You read different young adult than I did. <laughs> right. well, you never read The Hunger Games? Well, yeah, no, yeah that actually. was more implied body count. I mean, do, no, I never read the no. books. Did they there, actually describe the body count? Yeah, there are people torn apart by giant mutants. That did not make it into the film. And then there were suicide bombs. Huh. Also yeah, not there's, in the movie. there's this entire scene where uh, the main character decides not to date Gale, who is a character in a love triangle, because he authorized the usage of suicide bombs among young children in order to defeat the capital. Oof. Wow. Yeah, and the suicide bombers were 11, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't read that series. I see your point about young adult now, though. There's this scene in Divergent where a guy loses an eye because the main character is being attacked by their own bunkmates and she flips out. There's a scene from Ender's Shadow where there's this bully who's been bothering Bean and Bean finally flips out and, like, corners him in an obscure part of the station and leaves him there in the darkness for eight hours for him to stew in his own misery and fear. Nice. Jesus. Yeah, I tried, I started so, reading Ender Shadow. I, I couldn't get into it. I don't know, the whole being it's not a good book. thing. It's, it's a slow beginning. It's, it's not a good book. Speaker for the Dead was a lot better. 
and in horror, you have like a. I've read a lot of Dean Coots for my horror, okay. but let's okay. be honest here. So Dean Coots wrote about some really weird shit, and not even like weird in a horror sense, but like, geez, what was that book called? In the pale moonlight, about two people who get injected with nano machines, and government agents have to hunt them down or something. Ooh, mm, nice, interesting. And again, so what was it, what is it about these things that you enjoyed? Oh, it's just the fact that it was this crazy shit. Yeah, they, they they were different and they were raw and they weren't polished at all. And inside, it's like I developed this theory that I really called the B movie theory. In B movies. Weird shit is allowed to happen for the sake of weird shit happening. Yeah, true. And that weird shit is often some of the most creative stuff that you can possibly find. Because in polished movies, you end up with this smoothness and everything leads into each other. But B-movies aren't afraid to throw in a one-shot scene that makes no sense in the context with the rest of it. That is true. I mean, most movie making and even the, the editing process for books, too, is often to say if you don't need it throw it out yeah or like um, this target audience won't get it so we can't put that in there because sales or whatever if it's a b-movie or or like a uh, indie book per se then yeah you're right there's a lot more freedom well in chris and i were talking about this last night what movie was that um dawn of the dead yeah 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 it was dawn um, of the dead the punk biker you know they were all just invading the mall and and being chicanerous and just messing with things because they're punks and they're bikers and yeah one guy is, is like oh i'm gonna use the blood pressure machine because there's nobody here in this abandoned mall and i can do it and he gets eaten by zombies because he's stuck in a blood pressure machine but chris was pointing out how stupid it was for this punk to do this because he knows he's being chased by zombies why would you stick your arm in something that's meant to lock you down and what i said to chris at the time was well it was probably one of these things where like they're shooting in the mall and the director saw the machine and was like hey wouldn't it be funny if we did something with this yeah. Where, like you said, you know, in in more polished stuff, that wouldn't have made it through the editing process. Yeah. Okay. Um, so did you have a group of friends or family members that shared your enjoyment with these things? Or was it just a solo thing? It was pretty much a solo thing. I Around this time is when I started writing. And mm-hmm. God, it was bad. <laughs> wow. It was too- so bad. Well, I mean, most things when you start when you're a kid are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how you get better. And I was in a group of writers, and they were all bad. (laughs) Well, at least you're all on the same page. Like, looking back, holy cow. (laughs) But did you guys know you were bad? (laughs) No, we didn't figure that out until years later. We thought we were great. (laughs) We thought we were kings. Is it the uh, Dunning Kruger? Is that the one where you need to have some? Uh, uh, you have to have some aptitude in the thing that you're doing. You have to have enough aptitude in it to know what you're doing is wrong. Otherwise, you don't even know that what you're doing is wrong. Exactly. I think that's. Mm-hmm. I, I, it may not be Dunning Kruger. May not be the name of it, but it's, I know it, there's. It's a... close enough to Dunning Kruger. Yeah. Okay. False sure. competency. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, that's right. If you're going through sociology, you probably know about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm a social psychologist. I study biases. Mm. The other delicious oh, things. Was there anything in the um, content that you uh, took in that caused you to change your behavior then? As a, like you learn something and you go, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. Or, or either towards something or away from something. 
Well, eventually the writing group exploded because mm -hmm. there was like 20 bajillion egos inside of it and none mm -hmm. of them could put up with each other's bullshit anymore. Mm -hmm. So I ended up inheriting the shell of a group, which I then promptly tried to bring back. And that was such a bad idea. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, I don't just mean with what you consumed in the group. I mean, your experiences with horror as a child, like the books we just talked about. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, to, to make a long story short, I accidentally invited an actual probable sociopath into the group. And nice. I got to experience for four months everything slowly burning into flames around me as the group became steadily more and more extreme and started covering topics like rape and murder and murder rape and snuff and... Ooh. And how old were you at the time? I was like 16, maybe 15. And, and how old was the sociopath in the group? Like 15 or 16. Same, okay. Uh, so is that what brought you your interest in understanding why people like that why they are the way they are yeah was that your introduction to weirdness for lack of a better way to put it yeah that was my introduction to like actual horror right mm -hmm. that and die hard uh, explain that yeah oh okay okay so while my family isn't into horror my dad was highly into action movies and it was from action movies that I discovered what I wanted from my work. Which is? So you're, you you all seen Die, Die Hard, right? Yes. You know how John McClane gets beaten up for an hour straight? Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, he's more like wound than man and bleeding from like every orifice and is covered in dirt? Yeah, right. And then at around the 70% uh, mark, he finally starts to win. Mm-hmm. And that moment where it goes from losing to winning is the most, is it provokes the most endorphins of the entirety of the film is that moment when he's got the police on his side, he's coming after the main villains, the music is picking up. That moment is what I want in my work. And so I thought, man, what makes Die Hard different from all these other movies that don't do this? And I came to the conclusion they didn't beat the shit out of the main character enough. Hmm. The stakes weren't high enough. This is why all the movies around are like, end of the world and blah, 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 when you see action movies nowadays, because they, they got to raise the stakes artificially in order to keep the audience on the guy's side and right there beside him. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, horror movies, well, you know, some horror movies have bad endings and some horror movies have good endings. So I'm not, not going to generalize, but like, you know what else is a good action movie? The Thing. It is. <laughs> it's a horror action movie. But at the end of it, the main character is basically more wound than man, burns everything down. It has, it has the same style. Okay. Some might argue he was more thing than man. Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> so I, I came up with this, this, with this idea of how I could design my work that I could just come up with a set of wounds that I could attach the main character. And from there, I could derive that moment of release that these films are all about. Hmm. And then I watched John Dies at the end. Okay. <laughs> Have you heard of this movie? Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen parts of it. It's very abstract and surreal. Um, I, I kept falling asleep through it, so I haven't finished it. Sorry. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> it was written by a, crack, by a cracked author back when cracked was a thing. 
Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, he wrote it as like, part of NaNoWriMo and released it serialized on the site. Huh. Hmm. And that's why it makes, that's why it's complete surreal and stuff, because it was written day by day. Okay. Um, and inside of John dies at the end. And I watched this movie in a lark and didn't know it was related to Cracked. It was just on Netflix, because Netflix had just come out. Okay. There's this idea of there being another world that intersects with our own, that you can only access through certain rituals or certain rites or certain knowledge. Okay. And that this world, once you've witnessed it, is hostile and doesn't care that you exist. And I I had read H.P. Lovecraft before, but let's face it, reading Lovecraft's a bit like hitting yourself in the head with a cinder block. (laughs) In what way? Yeah. It's not very good. (laughs) Okay, Okay, yeah. I just wanted to understand which way you meant that. (laughs) Okay. It's like taking sandpaper to your eyes. That's what his prose is like. (laughs) Like, what what do you get out of reading Lovecraft? Nothing. Absolutely. You get insanity. You get insanity. You get a bunch of themes that a lot of other people did a lot better. I just remembered (laughs) something from my childhood, which probably influenced me more than anything else. Damn it. What is it? Digimon Tamers. Okay. Digimon Tamers was actually written by a Japanese member of the Cthulhu of the Cthulhu mythos. Really? Yes. And hmm. um, it involves going into another world and returning. And while they're in the other world, this thing attaches itself to them, and they bring it back into the real world. And that thing is called the D Reaper. And the D Reaper is a computer program that's designed to delete programs that exceed a certain amount of complexity. Okay. But obviously the people who invented it couldn't imagine a world where the world that they were creating digitally could ever interact with the real world. And so they basically, whenever they were done with the project they were working on, they set up the, D- the D-Reaper to destroy all the data so they wouldn't have to do it themselves. I imagine it was a really complex program. They were working for the military or something. Mm. And at any rate, during the course of the show, this thing shows up and infests a girl uh, whose name is Jerry, whose partner has died. So basically, it's like Agent Smith came to the real world. Yeah, it's like Agent Smith came to the real world, but Agent Smith was a giant goo monster. Okay. And so this D-Reaper infests Jerry and feeds off of her emotional energy and despair and slowly drives everyone away from her piece by piece until she's alone and lonely. And then it disappears her and replaces her with a copy. Okay. And so as the series progresses, once they're back in the real world, the D-Reaper grows more and more powerful by feasting upon this literal little girl's hopes and dreams and begins devouring the entirety of Shinjuku, which is a part of Japan. I've been there. Uh, it wraps itself around several buildings. It just starts slowly deleting them as if the world itself is so complex that it sees it as part of its overwhelming function is to destroy the world and process it into simpler materials. Digimon was a children's cartoon, was it not? Oh, yeah. But it was Japanese. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, yeah. They grow up fast. Um, (laughs) Yes, they do. In the fourth season, they fight Satan. Of course they do. (laughs) In in the second season, a character is nearly raped in order to to make more fishmen. Uh, Okay, that's... In order to serve uh, the uh, god Dagon. And you remember Dagon from Cthulhu Mythos? Uh-huh. Yeah, so we're back to Lovecraft now. This, you're yeah, right. They, yeah. they were he's heavily in, inspired. He's in Digimon se- Season 2. Huh. Yeah. 
I'm not even making that up. <laughs> have you seen okay. the movie Dagon? I have not. It's pretty good. It's, you know, borderline B movie. So how about Halloween in your teens? You said you stopped at 12, so I guess you didn't really participate in your teen years. Yeah, I, I didn't really participate in Halloween because that was around the, in my teens was when I moved. I moved okay. from uh, Kentucky to Alabama, and there wasn't a lot of trick-or-treating in the neighborhood we moved to. So if you didn't participate in trick-or-treating then, uh, did you, I mean, did they have, you know, high school dance or anything like that? Any other social activities that you were involved oh, in? Oh, Lord, no. I was too much of a social outcast to participate in any of those. Just checking. I guess then during the teenage years, did you, well, you said you had the group, uh, the writer's group. Did you have, how can I say this? Were, was that your group that it was also into horror or did you have another group of friends that who were into horror or was that the only group that you were a part of? Well, so far as horror goes, a fr friend of mine who is still my friend introduced a concept to the group, which was basically this macrocosmic ending and that during this ending, all the storylines that we were trying to write would come to a point and mm. that point would kill off like most of the cast and leave this bare straggling people behind and there was like a year and a half that we just obsessed over this one idea of writing this absolute point so at any rate uh we got a lot of ideas of horror because we kept making more and more and more and more powerful things because every time we'd think oh well this thing would be good enough for this we'd have to go no that's not a good enough villain <laughs> and this, this process went on for several years and then the group died. So we never actually came up with an ultimate villain, but we came up with all these ideas. Right. Also around this time was when I started reading SCP. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chris and I are more, are well familiar with that website. Uh, I have spent way too many hours reading that page. Um, so I, I mentioned that at 16, I stopped being able to be horrified by that stuff. Right. Because yeah. I started being horrified by things that were way more local. Mm -hmm. But what SCP is, is just like whenever I was an early teenager in YA and horror, put all these things together that had never been put together before, or they weren't afraid to do these things. SCP would consistently put out things that had never been created before. Yeah. Yeah. There's some definitely some weird shit on that, on that site that just makes you go, wow, who came up, came up with that? I started reading SCP right before the first great retcon. Mm. I don't know how hip you are on SCP lore. Uh, I'm not familiar with there being site-wide retcons, um, so that's news to me. Okay, so you know how the tone of the first thousand is radically different from 2000, 3000, 4000, 5000? I haven't really noticed that. Well, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering if it's just because I've skipped around so much. Because I didn't read through that. I tried reading through them sequentially, but there's just so many links to jump from one thing to another uh, to follow, like, sort of, sort of not really a storyline. Although I know there is now sort of a storyline, whereas before it was just a, a list of weird shit. Well, you um, see, originally there was a storyline. Hmm. And the storyline sucked. Hmm. It was basically about a bunch of author inserts having wonderful, wacky adventures. Oh. And it was kind of bad. And then there was a massive falling out because one of the members turned out to be a douchebag. And when that person left, it left massive jagged holes in canon and basically killed the entire project of the canon. 
Mm-hmm. So then there was no coherent storyline, but the site survived because there was a massive influx of people whenever the first SCP video game hit. There's, I didn't even know there was a video game. Yeah, there's been a video game in alpha for like the last 10 years called Containment Breach. <laughs> that is awesome. Nice. And whenever that hit, it went horrifically viral and flooded the site with new users, putting new life into it. Hmm, so I'm okay. going to skip forward so that I don't give you the entire history of SCP, which I could. Sure. Because I've read everything on the goddamn site at least three times. Uh, because I stopped writing at around 17 to 18. Mm-hmm. And didn't pick up until my third year of college. Okay. Around the time I started writing again, SCP had transitioned again and had started developing cannons again. Okay. But it hadn't just started developing cannons. It had started developing a thing which had never actually existed before. Meaning? You can start reading these things around the 3000s and 4000s, which isn't about, like, the SCP Foundation itself, but are actually about the things that live inside of this incredibly complex horror world with thousands of intersecting peoples and intersecting storylines. And these things had never existed. And this isn't just horror. This is weird. I think that's one of the things that I like about SCP is, like you say, it's not just horror. It's there's just weird shit, that, but it's creatively weird in a good way. Yeah. Um, stuff that makes you just really stop and go, wow, that's interesting. So I think you had said that there there was no other group other than the writing group that you were part of. Um, was there was there ever a time as a teen that you were legitimately terrified of something in real life? Horrified or terrified because they're different? Uh, let's get both and then we'll go from there. Yeah, we'll do one of each. In terms of terror... I actually had that phobia of cars. Okay. Uh, it took me seven years to learn how to drive. Because every time I would get behind the wheel of a car, I would be paralyzed with tremors and shaking. Hmm. Okay. Because... Did you, were you in an accident as a kid or something? I, I was, but uh, it, it wasn't because of that. It was because I was very aware of my own mortality. Because if you break down the activity of driving into what it actually is... It's several tons of metal flying past each other on a highway where the only thing preventing people from crashing into one another is everyone following invisible rules of the road, except those rules of the road have been internalized and altered based upon your experiences of the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of, of literal force involved in anything uh, going at highway speeds these days is, yeah, you just don't want to think about it. I mean, it's exactly. easier to... Because I did the same thing when I was I, when I was in high school and taking driver's ed. They briefly told, taught us about this. And yeah, there was, I don't know how long of my life, but there was a serious portion of my life where that was definitely on my mind. Which is not necessarily a bad thing for a teenager to be thinking about. I mean, if you are going to be learning to drive, it's better to have a kid who has that in mind than one who just fucking is flippant and, oh yeah, sure, I can crash into shit, no problem. Um, I'm invincible. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a, a realistic thing and, and understandable. Um, and, so how uh, does that... Go ahead. In, uh, I should probably talk about how that, that inspired me to write horror, huh? Sure. Yeah. One thing about horror is that they're not afraid to maim and kill people. Yes. That's the good and thing. I heard someone say this like four years ago, talking about... Probably one of the chainsaw massacres. Have there been multiples of those? Mm-hmm. Yes. Seven or eight now, I think. About, at one point, 
a character opens a door, and on the other side of the door is whatever the fuck his name is, the murdered guy. Leatherface. And Leatherface is a giant hammer. And they both stare at each other because they've managed to surprise each other. <laughs> nice. And so Leatherface hits him over the head with the hammer, and he falls to the ground quivering in a puddle of himself. Mm-hmm. And it's just this moment where he's transfigured from being a human into a collection of quivering meat. Right. And he's always been a collection of quivering meat, but now instead of being instead of being ordered and human, now he's just seizuring. He's dead, but his body's still moving. Yeah. And it's that idea of mortality that I really derived from horror. Okay. But what so what about that got you into writing horror? Oh, uh, well, you remember how I talked about Die Hard mm-hmm. and the thing and how they had similar arcs? Yeah. I became interested whenever I was in senior year of, of coming up with a formula for writing. Okay. And I used a lot of action movies to develop this formula. And I used a lot of, of books and manga and everything I could consume to put together this grand overarching theory of how books should work. Okay. And one thing that I found worked very well was reminders of mortality. And that is what I derived from a lot of horror movies, was these reminders of mortality. You need to remind people that they can die. Because of what you were saying earlier about stakes not being high enough. Yeah. Instead of the end of the world being the stakes, you could just have the characters be genuinely afraid of their own life. And if they're not powerful characters, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's uh, a powerful method because it really does bring it more home to the reader or the viewer because like yeah you can you know tell a story about the world ending or cataclysmic events and that that kind of disconnects it from a a personal experience because you're like all right well the world's ending i have no control over this whereas i mean you have no control over your own death as well but uh you know a person or a character in a story being uh, killed or abused it it does bring it more it, it makes it more personal because that can definitely happen to you yeah you definitely should have at least some power over your own death, depending on what the situation is. Whereas, you know, if the world is ending, statistically, you're probably going to have much less power over that, uh, yeah. depending on the story, of course. So what was, how did you, to go back a second, so what you mentioned in your terror, which was the sphere of cars, how did you do, separate that from uh, a time when you were horrified? I was also horrified by something else. In, in, in academic speak, terror and horror are different things. Terror is the unknown and horror is the known. Right. Terror is being afraid of something that might happen. Yeah. And or is something that did happen. That you're something that did happen. It's knowledge that you do have. Yeah. So what, I mean, do you even want to talk about it, first of all? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I can talk about it. it. It wasn't that bad. I mean, okay. it was bad, but I've gone through therapy, so it's fine. Um, okay. The most horrified I was whenever I was a teenager was I was at my aunt's funeral. Okay. And she had hepatitis C, so she had died a lot. She was in the process of dying for six or seven years. Mm -hmm. And at her funeral, because she was basically broke, they couldn't afford a priest that knew her. And the priest gave a really generic speech about how she would have wanted us to be happy and join the church. Oh. And basically proselytized the audience to join the church so they could join her in heaven. And I was just sitting here because I realized 
that for a lot of people, this would be the last memory they had of this woman was this, the priest giving this false speech of what she was like. I've, I've been to one where it was something like that. And that I just thought that was really distasteful of the priest. I like, if it was me, if I was the relative, I'd have gone up and bitched him the fuck out, but it wasn't me. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I would have done it, but I was 15. So yeah, that's not, uh, not pleasant. So yeah, um, that's not a good age to punch a priest. Sure it is. Actually, I was just gonna say you're you don't get the you probably uh, get away with it if you're 15. Yeah, um, I probably should have punched him in the face. <laughs> not that we are condoning that for any of the listeners. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids don't <laughs> punch priests unless they deserve it. Well, come on, there's uh, no this. Yeah, yeah. The kids shouldn't be listening to this in the first place. Yes, um, that's fair. Yeah. Plus, we had our trigger warnings. I condone punching priests in the face. Oh. Hell yeah, let's punch priests in the face. <laughs> Only if they're Nazi priests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wait, that actually reminds me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, can we go into my adulthood now? Let's wrap up a or couple things. Do you have anything things. else you want to ask? Yeah, let's wrap up a couple things. So, um, did you have any scary dreams when you were a kid? Or uh, as a team. Oh, you know, the normal stuff. Waking up and finding out that your parents are dead and you can't get home in time to see them. That could do it, yeah. Um, The occasional dream of uh, discovering that you were gay or that you had some sort of horrible disease or something. By the way, I'm gay. Hi. Um, Hi, (laughs) Bye, but but whenever you're a teenager and you're unsure of yourself, having dreams like that are horrifying. Yeah, yeah. If, if I, I'm assuming those dreams were before you came out about that, then I could just see that, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, I didn't come out until college. Not uncommon. And just all sorts of... Hmm, I'm trying to think of any specific dreams, but very hard to think that far back. A lot of my teenage years are a blur because I was on Adderall. Hmm. And now that I'm off, my memories of it was is very imperfect. Is very imperfect. We have a lot of questions here that don't necessarily apply to everybody. Um, we just have them because you never know when it will apply. So if you don't really have a lot for it, that's fine too. So let, yeah, let's move into the adult stuff then. Um, so what are some of the uh, you know scary stories, books, or movies that you've come across as an adult that have left an impact on you? So when I was a teenager, I ran out of books to read because books were expensive. Mm-hmm. So I moved on to fan fiction. <laughs> which is not expensive well it it comes at a cost just a different cost yeah just just not a monetary cost yeah yeah and whenever i was a teenager slash adult there was this fan fiction i read about zuko from avatar the last airbender waking up upon his ship and no one's there and the entire fic is him wandering the halls of the ship trying to figure out what happened to them all and everything is covered in thick layers of rust. Hmm. And it's a dual character story slash horror story of him delving deeper and deeper into the depths of this ship while having regrets about the way that he treated his friends whenever they were around. And there's some monster that's just outside of his reach and vision that keeps thumping against the side of the ship. And everything smells like rust and blood. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, most of the terror and horror from the uh, bridge between being a teenager and adult was very, very real-life stuff. That's what I remember the most. Anything you want to mention in particular? 
Oh yeah, I, I can mention it. Uh, I went, like I said, I went to therapy for a lot of this stuff, so talking about it doesn't bother me anymore. Okay. Um, so whenever I was in college, I flunked my first semester, mm. like hardcore flunked. I know the feeling. And I was a scholarship student, so I was I lost my scholarship for a year. Yep. So for three semesters straight, I had to get straight A's, and towards the end, I ended up with a few B's, and the stress basically drove me insane because every waking moment was why didn't I do better? Why couldn't I do better? Why am I so powerless? And so the summer of my second year of college, I had to enroll in three online classes. And this was my last hope because there's no way I could, I could uh, pay for college by myself. I was, I was only, I'm not in a lot of student debt, by the way. So that's not really what keeps me up at night. Thank God. Hmm. That was probably one of the most terrifying parts of my life. I started developing tremors and shakes mm. from just looking at clocks and thinking about what day it was. And just these paralyzing moments where I would go near and sensate and just stare blankly at things for hours on end from the stress. I understand. Any other uh, fictional works that uh, jumped out at you or... or even nonfiction, if you want to talk Let's about that. see here. Oh, uh, if I can go on another example from real life, I just remembered what probably pushed me hardcore into my current career path, okay. which is important. Mm -hmm. um, I was originally a biology major. Okay. The school I was at, the biology program was incredibly hostile. Okay. Like there were classes that were deliberately set up to flunk as many people as possible because it was a... Because they were uh, cutting out students from the pre-med program. And so people who were just going into biology to be a biologist would catch the backlash from that. Mm. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in sociology. Because I had, was in sociology, I had a ton of free time to write. Mm. Okay. So nonfiction works. Um, around that time, I started uh, consuming a lot of podcasts and streams. Any favorites? Um, I'm a huge fan of a, of a Canadian comedy troupe called Loading Ready Run. I think I've heard of them. If you've ever heard of Desert Bus for Hope, they're the ones that run that. I haven't heard of that, but I've heard of Loading Ready Run. They also release they also release an early internet viral hit called History of Halo. That sounds familiar as well. So, what were what were the things that you uh, were excited by or terrified by or horrified by of the i mean we've already talked about the the flunking so there was your powerless and uh pointing out the lack of time uh, or being obscenely aware of you know the time passing um what about the uh the fanfic or the podcasts um what did, what excited you about those or or horrified you about those well they had this series loading ready run has this series they recently brought it back called watch and play okay and watch and play is they get this this guy named Alex to play D grade video games. Okay. Like video games that should never have been released. Okay. And they're these these piles of glitches and bugs. And occasionally you end up with stuff that actually is fantastic, but no one's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. So it's like an MST three thousand for video games. Basically. Or like a <laughs> What was that show, An Idiot Abroad, where they just blindly send the guy to, to different countries? It sounds that like, too, yeah. Similar to that. But that sounds entertaining. These things were basically B-movies, mm -hmm. where things happened because they happened, 
And while the majority of these video games were nigh incomprehensible and they didn't make sense because they were incomplete, occasionally you'd end up with masterpieces like this game I'm going to recommend called Tomato Way. Okay. Which is a body horror game with some of the most disturbing graphics known to man. You have my attention. <laughs> Where you play as a giant tomato carving your way through mutated monstrosities in a post-apocalyptic landscape. It's a weird fucking game. Okay. They also did a lot of other streams. Around, around whenever I was a teenager, I also got into Magic the Gathering. And in Magic the Gathering, they had these, they had this uh, ongoing plotline which still hasn't been resolved called the Phyrexians. And the Phyrexians are this species that are, I'm sorry, are, is this ideology derived from a corrupting source of oil that whenever it gets on you, slowly converts you towards a specific ideology. And you start doing things like carving off your own skin and bones and replacing it with metal and tormenting individuals and slowly corrupting the landscape into these neo-industrial nightmares. Sounds like a bit like 40K. A little bit. It's, it's a bit like if the uh, human religion from Warhammer 40K was distilled into a uh, virulent oil that infected fantasy worlds. Yeah. That's a good way of describing uh, new Phyrexia. And like I said, at this point, I still can't feel horror whenever I read things. So this stuff was just unbelievably interesting. Okay. Yeah. So did you have, uh, like you mentioned when you were writing in uh, your teenage years, you had a, a group of fellow authors. Are you part of any groups uh, now as an adult or do you have a group oh, of Oh yeah, friends? I'm a part of uh, Reddit Serials. Okay. Cool. Which is a loose alliance of Reddit serialists who do what I do. Nice. So they all write a um, series of books, like serials, like they're not individual stories, so they all have like one linear plot connecting them all? Oh no, they're all different. They all have very different stories for each other. Okay. What about in your personal life? Do you have uh, like any friends who uh, share an interest in some of the similar things? Oh yeah, my roommate. Um... My roommate was actually a member of the original writing group, and we kept in touch all these years. And he needed to get away from home, and I needed a roommate, so... So you've got some, at least, social uh, positivity uh, going in that regard. I'm guessing at this point you now are aware that the stuff is, can be entertainment, not just, uh, you know, fearful stuff. Um, have you, as an adult, started going back into participating in Halloween? I have not, but that's because I'm in a pretty bad neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, I think that's that's come up in a, in a couple of interviews so far. Like, it's, it's it's not the same these days, you know. I mean, there's really no door to door trick or treating anymore. It's usually like the the car trunk Halloween experience where you take your kids to a parking lot next to a church, and it's like, all right, this is safe. Well, and I don't know where exactly you live. Are you still in Alabama, for example? Uh, I moved to Georgia. Georgia, well, okay. not much different. Um, but yeah. like here, we are we're near. Uh, we're basically in the Tampa Bay area, and there's a nightclub here called the Castle that uh, has sort of a goth industrial theme. And you know, aside from the fact that they do stuff for Halloween, it's year, year round. There are there's a place for people who like this kind of stuff who can go and hang out and. God, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And I actually, I think, I mean, depending on where in Georgia you are, I'm sure I, I'm almost positive there's a place like that in Atlanta, but I don't know how far that is from you. But. Isn't the original Masquerade in Atlanta? I mean, that's not exactly the castle, but they had like darker and, and like metal shows there and things like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, so as an adult, um, 
has your experience with horror or terror or any of these uh, types of things, fiction or nonfiction, uh, introduced any fears that you had had earlier in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Like? <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a loaded question. Right? So I'm a sociologist, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm interested in is radicalization. Okay. And this is a bit of a heavy topic, I understand. And I know that we're in the horror podcast, but man, you see some shit. Yeah, I mean, some of the most horrific stuff is the stuff that we as people do to each other. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that some people the, think... Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, sometimes the real horror is human nature. Well, I was going to boil it down to saying, you know... Because of things that happened when I grew up as a kid, I, I'm not a 100% pacifist, but I understand having a belief that it is very rarely ever okay to cross a boundary and intentionally hurt someone else, uh, emotionally or physically. But I'm very aware of the boundary where other people, there's a lot of people in the world who have zero regard for boundaries, don't understand the concept, don't even, it's it's not a concept in their brain at all. There is no difference between you and me. And there's, so if I punch you or I yell at you, there it, it means nothing. Um, beliefs. Uh, people act based on their beliefs about what is or is not appropriate to do in a given situation. And I guess the thing that, in my opinion, can be terrifying or horrifying about human behavior comes from the fact that they have the beliefs that it is acceptable to do what it is that they're doing. Um, you know, if they didn't have the belief to begin with, then the action probably wouldn't happen. So I guess it's the belief that, uh, that they hold. Exactly. And I learned all these theories on what drives people and what human nature is. And how has this changed you, uh, changed your behavior? When I was a teenager, I used to be a hothead. <laughs> so it's made you cool off. <laughs> yeah. You don't know who it is you're about to mess with. <laughs> yeah. That's understandable. And I was a hothead that would go off at anything. And nowadays I'm an adult and I'm the guy who's more likely to be able to diffuse things. And it's a really weird change. Yeah. I mean, that's... One of the things, uh, one of the topics in the book that I wrote, um, oh, you know what? We, well, we didn't mention it in the beginning of the podcast, but um, the reason that Chris and I are doing this and we're a good mix for this is that, so I wrote a book on my experiences going through uh, counseling and 12-step stuff, and Chris is a huge horror fan. So I've, I bring the psychological side, he brings the, the horror fan side. And That's uh, wonderful. One of the topics in my book is, to put it into a word, grace. Um, and one of my definitions for the word grace is, you know, having the power to manually, uh, you know, affect something through brute force, but not needing to, because you now have these other, you know, you have other tools that can do the job. Um, and I think that kind of maybe ties in with it, what you just said there about, you know, you had this change where you used to be the type of guy that could get in somebody's face, but now you also have the tools to deescalate, um, and so there is some level of grace there where, uh, yeah, I could do that, but I no longer need to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Don't remember exactly where we left off. Um, we were in the oh, adult phase. Were, well, Zuber was talking about uh, going into sociology mm -hmm. um, and basically being horrified by human behavior, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. 
And I think actually, now that I think about it, I think that's what you were saying a minute ago in terms of uh, making you be careful of who you talk to and de-escalate. Yeah, de-escalate. It's uh, one of the uh, primary doctrines of sociology was written, was actually written by a person who was a hothead himself, C. Wright Mills, who wrote about the sociological imagination, which is basically a scientific way of saying, take a walk in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of understanding human behavior is understanding from what platform they come from. Mm -hmm. Context. Yeah. Was there ever a time as you're in your adult life that you've been actually horrified or terrified of something? Uh, I guess horrified would be human behavior that you just said. What about terrified? Oh, terrified. Um, this is actually quite recent. Hmm. So uh, I graduated from college and I was in a very bad situation because if you have a sociology degree, but you don't have a higher order sociology degree, you don't have a degree. Hmm. In that field anyway. Yeah. So uh, getting into grad school is kind of a crapshoot of an affair. I don't know if either of you two have uh, done it. I have not. I don't think Chris has. I never went to college. (laughs) (laughs) It involves a lot of essays and begging letters of recommendations from people. Okay, And you have to do it a solid six months before you graduate because it'll start in March of your senior year if if you apply in November of your senior year. So was the terror uh, related to not getting into grad school? I missed that. So I had a year off. Huh. And I experienced oh. the horrors of the modern job market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that can be horrific. And I went without a job for six months, despite applying to, I think, over a thousand places. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that we haven't really talked about, uh, which is sort of the, the last for this portion of questions is, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things that you've experienced in your adult life in terms of your uh, exposure to um, horror fiction or nonfiction. Um, But we haven't really talked about the parts of it that you appreciated or that you enjoyed. Um, Like we talked about what the things that you were like, for example, uh, when we talk about the schooling and you talk about how you felt powerless and, and, you know, the, the time crunch. Um, and we talk about the Zuko uh, fanfic that you read about, you know, the introspection, but what were, what were the positive things about these things that you appreciated in the tomato way? What were, you know, let's talk about some of the positive stuff that came out of this. Well, I have a, I have a semi-massive fandom mm-hmm. of like 3,500 people. Pretty proud right. of that. Yeah. Um, I've written a million words in the last two years. That is impressive. Um, and like I said, I don't feel horror, right? I don't get that whenever I read anymore. But I do know when something's horrifying because it'll be incredibly interesting. And whenever I did a, did finally get a job, I worked at a chemical factory for six months. God, was it really six months? Jesus. Well, what I'm trying to get at is like, for example, you say it's interesting, but why is it interesting? What's the emotional significance to you? What is oh, the- right. Sorry. Sorry. Um, is it that it's unique or that it's groundbreaking or boundary pushing or, um, you know, I, guess, I think my answer to the question was that it's, it's taboo. So it's a, uh, a safe 
I mean, I don't want to lead them too much. I, you know, yeah, kinda... yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so the reason why I write horror is because inside of horror, you're allowed to do whatever the fuck you want. Yep. Mm-hmm. In Crows, in Gale, um, one the main villain is a metaphysical... The main villain is a human general with no powers. He has absolutely no powers. And the only thing that's hor- horrifying about him is that he's gathered this charismatic army behind him and then he kills a god and eats its brains. Mm. And I couldn't do that outside of horror. Nope. Okay. So you like the freedom of it? Yeah. I, I like to describe the stuff I write as being a bit of the new weird, which is a, a subgenre of horror. Okay. Wherein in the new weird, you're allowed to just... It's almost total literary freedom. Hmm. You can throw in a bunch of genre and tropes from different places and mash them all together. And as long as they're linked by this sensation that you could die, it's... I hate to describe it as a form of information hedonism. Hmm. But when you... Whenever you read so much, you crave things that are weird. Mm-hmm. You crave things that are different. Yeah. And it's that kind of craving which drives me forward when I write. That's kind of interesting. So what I think I was basing my question around was, and it, it may actually still be a valid question, but I'll say it anyway. So what I was thinking is, okay, I was basing my question thinking that the, the new slash weird slash different was interesting to you because of there being some reason that new things and weird things and interesting things interest you. Like, why do those things interest you? Oh, um, I, can, uh, I, I, can, I can answer that. Okay. Okay. I'm a scientist. Yes. That's and... it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's because all these things have systems that haven't been explored. Mm-hmm. Whenever you read Harry Potter, you very quickly realize there's no system. There's no internal logic which guides it, right? Well, depends on how deep you go. (laughs) On the surface, there may be, but a lot of fans have picked it apart, yes. And Lord of the Rings, magic system, there's nothing behind it, not really. Yeah, it's not really well-defined, but intentionally so. Intentionally left ambivalent. In new weird systems, sometimes things are introduced which will never be explained, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes there's a hidden logic which guides Mm -hmm. everything. And whenever you understand that hidden logic, you see the other half of the project. And the other half can be terrifying or beautiful or Mm -hmm. wonderful or destructive. Okay. So this kind of ties in with uh, something Chris had said in our last interview, which is um, ambiguity is a crutch. However, you're leaving room for something that you could leave it unexplained if you wanted to and just have it be anomalous. Or... Mm -hmm. If you choose to explain it, then you're adding a new dimension to the work. And any tool can be used for good and bad. Mm -hmm. So looking back over your life as a whole now, um, the question we originally worded was, what movie have you watched more times than any other? But if if you'd prefer, what book have you read more than any other? We could, or both, you could answer both. I've definitely watched Die Hard more than any other movie. <laughs> Every Christmas. <Okay>. Every Christmas. <laughs> um, and so far as books go, gosh, books that I've read more than once. Fuck. 
No, I more than any other. Yeah, I think he's just saying more than once, period. Like that's well. And if there isn't one that stands out, that's fine too. No, no, give me a sec, give me a sec. Probably something by Tamora Pierce. Yeah. Tamora Pierce. Yeah, yeah. I think it was I think it's Briar's book by Tamora's Pierce. I don't know that one, I'll have to check it out. It's a young adult series about four mages that have unique and weird magics and they come together and have adventures, but Briar's book is about a plague. A horrific, awful plague. And so many people die during it. But it's described so well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I was going to ask a follow-up question to that, which I, I think you just answered it, which is, you know, do, do you find yourself rereading that because it's one of those stories where you have to reread it to catch things you didn't catch the first time? Or is it just that the, the quality of the writing is so good that you want to read it again? It's, it sounds like the answer would be the latter. Yeah, it's probably the latter. Yeah. So do you see any common threads looking back through our conversation now do you see any common threads about the kind of horror that you like is it you know there's different kinds there's cannibalism body horror occult metaphysical um i mean it sounds like the metaphysical probably would be the best uh, fit or occult unless you can think of a better common thread name if you can think of one so there's a term in sociology called the strange just the strange okay it's called the strange strange is something that we do every day that we don't think about and because we don't think about it we don't realize it's strange mm -hmm. okay. it's kind of like when you say a word too many times and it starts to sound strange to you because you've never really thought about yeah, it yeah yeah kind of like that but with macro concepts yeah yeah like i, I mentioned driving right and yeah. how fucked up driving is mm -hmm. my my the, the work and the stuff i like to read have elements of that right Mm -hmm. where you dig into it and you kind of highlight it yeah like the entire thing with gale is that gale can't comprehend that gale's life is fucked up until the life is shattered and they look back and say holy shit mm -hmm. and crows is all about just discovering the path that she's taken and the things that she did before she forgot mm -hmm. and song is about this weird wonderful adventure where some things are normal and some things aren't and the things that are normal and the things that are not normal they often don't have a lot they don't have a lot of differences so <clears throat> my next question uh i kind of think i already see the answer to this one but i'll let you maybe answer it as well um which is just to say do you have any idea why it is that you like these things um you know the literary freedom the different the weird the systems exploration uh, the strange. Hmm. Because they're fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's all those reasons above, but also it's just, I don't think I could write anything normal. Like, God, do you understand how boring it would be to put together fucking systems for a normal world? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you ever thought, do you know what the job technical writer is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean... It, having given you a chance to try to answer it on your own to me what i see from this is really summed up in it by the the phrase systems ex exploration you know there there is a joy in in the exploration um when i was a kid this part of florida used to be very um not very undeveloped but there was a lot of undeveloped land and you know i used to ride my bike to school 
And sometimes you would take these trails that would cut through acres and acres and acres of woods where there were trails and there were homeless, you know, people who'd set up tents and they build, uh, uh, you know, structures that were kind of like, uh, I don't know what the word is. I want to say playhouse, but that's not right either. Treehouse, you know, but there was, there was a huge adrenaline burst for me um, exploring the woods. Um, And so I could understand how that could be exciting to you as well to have this world to, to explore um, as you're creating it yourself as an author, both and as reading it as a, as a consumer of other written works yourself um, or movies or what have you. Um, so sort of last question is now that we've sort of narrowed in on what it is that you enjoy, the question is, but why horror? And I think you've already answered that one too, uh, because you had said earlier in the call, um, that horror allows you a lot more freedom than other forms of, um, uh, fiction. Um, I guess we could expand the question to say, you know, other than fiction, maybe as opposed to activities you know there are some people who like to go climbing mountains without ropes you know there are you know is there something about writing horror that interests you more than those kinds of other adventure seeking activities well uh writing is something i can do in my bed um and it doesn't cost money easy answers (laughs) those are pretty easy answers i would like to do a lot of other stuff hell i got a deck of match the gathering cards chilling on a dresser i haven't touched in two years just because it costs money also who has the time these days you know yeah honestly yeah it's just like whenever you're kind of broke a lot of things aren't available to you but writing's always there yeah yeah that's yeah, true. true there's always the uh the the freedom and just free cost of being creative well, and I remember, you know, being a kid and they have the posters at the library about, you know, how many worlds you visited just in your mind, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of interesting because we've now, this is, I guess, technically our fourth interview if you count you, me, and Mia, and now Zuber. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have four different uh, summaries, I guess you could say. Uh, for Chris, it was uh, the crossing boundaries for me it was sort of a a connection to um the sublime for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. uh for mia there was some you know knowledge and knowledge brings power and control of uh you know her world uh preparation i guess you could say and for zuber there's the joy of the the systems exploration so it's, it's interesting that we're finding these different uh root causes shall we say yeah um well zuber you know thank you for coming and we're glad to have you uh for the listeners uh we're going to have a, a bio posted on the website that'll link to your web page and anything else you'd like us to link to um so you said that you're going to take down the first book of crows in the next few months so that you could publish it do you have anything else going on in the next maybe three months that uh you wanted to mention i think you i'm trying to remember what it was that you said at the start of the call at the start of the call. Yeah, yeah, long, long ago, in the before time. Yes. I felt like I was much younger then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Uh, might have been talking about song. 
yeah, you should totally, you should totally go uh, read Song before I take it down. <laughs> so thank you for being our guest. Um, yeah. And to anybody that's out there listening, uh, do please come visit us, visit us at horrormexishappy.com uh, and visit Zuber at Zuber, what was it? Zuber, just Zuberand.com, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so at our website, we'll have a schedule posted to show who we're interviewing next and the list of the people that we'd like to interview. Uh, if you can help us connect with any of those people, or if you know someone uh, that you'd like to have added to the list, let us know. Um, we're also going to post some Patreon stuff and link to social media, so we'll have access to that and merch. Um, just come let us know how we're doing. Or makes us happy.com. Yeah.